All right, everybody. Well, it's so good uh, to be able to say hi to one another in person. And uh, we want to take a moment to, um, as Art uh, just very, very wonderfully did, just uh, take a moment to remember those who have um, given their lives. Um, as you hear, when it comes to, to military, all gave some, but some gave all. And so uh, we recognize that this Memorial Day weekend, that um, this is not just a, a, an extra day off for people. This is not just, um, you know, not just a day to have a barbecue or things like that. Those can happen. Um, but just acknowledging and remembering that. So uh, specifically tomorrow at 3 p.m. is that time of the um, time of remembrance. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to just take a moment to remember those who have uh, sacrificed their lives and the families that they left behind. Now, we are... Um, so, so glad to be able to spend this morning with each and every one of you. And we uh, recognize that we are in a series called um, uh, Greater Than. I almost forgot. I almost like looked. I was like, are they going to notice if I look? But you, you would have. Um, uh, called Greater Than, which is a look at First John. And we are going to um, talk about what it means to show greater love today. That, you know, we, we hear often, especially on uh, Memorial Day weekend, the idea that greater love has no one than this, that uh, someone laid down their life for their friends, as Jesus talked about, a verse that is used, um, again, quite often in, in memory of Memorial Day. Um, and we're going to unpack what that greater love looks like for us. Um, and we're also going to unpack just some of the ways in which we face different types of battles. Um, and no, this is, this is not to equate uh, the same battles and the same wars that those who serve in our military so wonderfully and bravely are, are experiencing. We're not, we're not saying it's the exact same thing, but we are going to unpack some, some battles that we experience, um, some difficulties that we face, and how we can uh, get through and, and conquer and win uh, different battles around us. So would you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready to um, receive what God has for us this morning? Father, I thank you so much for who you are, and I thank you for each person that is here with us. Again, whether here is in person or online. Lord, I pray that um, we remember this is a day that you've made, and we rejoice and are glad in it. Lord, your mercies are new to us this very morning. And Lord, as we uh, draw breath today, Lord, we pray that we would breathe, um, knowing how much you love us knowing how much you care for us and how great your love is for us and how great the love is that we can share with those around us. I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, and uh, we have the, um, the Bible app has the notes available if you want to go that way. Um, otherwise, uh, you could go ahead and follow along in your Bibles. Now, I know that for many of us, uh, for many of us, we can feel like we can face different trials and different difficulties if it's at work or school, as long as, as long as home is okay. Because sometimes home can be that place where it's that haven to recharge. It's that place where we can feel safe and we could let our guards down and that we could still um, experience that encouragement uh, within our family. But what happens when home no longer becomes that place of that haven of safety? What happens when we no longer feel that strength drawn from a safe place at home and then we then try to go out and fight different battles around us? All of a sudden, it gets incredibly difficult and we can get 
battle weary. We can get worn down. We can get discouraged. And that goes for students who are going to school. That goes for people going to the workplace. That goes for people caring for other people and their families. That goes for any sphere of influence that we have or anywhere God has us, that there are times in which it can feel like we just get so overwhelmed. And when it feels like we are surrounded by battles, then it can feel like it's really hard to want to keep fighting. And one of the ideas that we're going to talk about today is that they, we have these great wars around us. Again, not equating what we're experiencing with those who serve in the military because what, what they do is incredible and we're so grateful and, and we honor them. But we do recognize that there are times in which if you're serving the military, you know that you are serving. You know that you are going to go in harm's way. And, and you recognize that one of the difficulties that we experience as, as those of us who follow Jesus and trust him as Lord is that we don't always know, we're not always aware of the spiritual battles around us. And we're not always aware that we are in a war to a degree, a spiritual warfare. And so what does it look like for us to face these different great wars around us? And we're going to look at this great, these great wars on two different fronts. And we're going to use verbiage from 1 John 3 that um, will be reminiscent of different wars that, that our country has fought in. And so the first war uh, that we experience is we'll call the World War. And this is not, again, the World War that we experienced in 1900 and, uh, 1914 or 1941. But it's this idea of the war of the world around us and how that impacts us in our lives. And so 1 John, we're going to start with verse 3, verse 11 through 13. And it says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now, we'll stop there because if you have, uh, maybe you're unaware or don't remember fully the story of Cain and Abel, so we want to unpack that because Cain was older brother, Abel was a younger brother, Cain was, a, was someone who worked with grain and with things like that and produce, and so he gave an offering to the Lord, but then Abel gave his, the best offering and the first choice meat, and so God looked at Abel's offering with favor, and Cain got jealous. Because he saw that Abel's offering was well received. And then John uses this as the example. This is one of the only times that John has an allusion or, or a reference to the Old Testament in his writings, um, in his letters. And so it's this reminder that what he's pointing to, he's talking about how the world, like Cain, will look at those who have a right relationship with God or those who are living for God. And there'll be this, this tension. There'll be a tension between the world and those who love Jesus. And if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you've experienced this to one degree or another. Maybe it's the degree to which, you know, someone asks you, do you really believe the Bible is the word of God? Because that just seems ridiculous to me, those people who say that. Maybe it's people that say, well, then how do you recognize or how do you reconcile how a good God allows bad things to happen? That, that how can God be real if something bad's happening? Maybe it's this idea that they question just, you know, well, how do you, what difference does God make? Because it seems like, you know, you're, you're doing the exact same things that I'm doing. And so how has that impacted you? Maybe it's you're praying at work and you get mocked for it. You're praying at school and students tease you. 
Maybe it's you go to a Christian club and they make fun of you. I mean, there's so many different ways in which the idea of following God can be in contrast to the world. And I'm not going to unpack this too much more because we spent a lot of time doing this last week in our topic uh, called Pursuing a Greater World. And so if you want to revisit the sermon, you totally can. But what I do want to bring your attention to is the reminder that when we're talking about the world, that the war between the world and God's people, I want to make sure we, again, reiterate which world we're referring to. Because, again, the world, the word world, that's going to be difficult. The word world um, can refer to all of creation, the universe that has been created with design and order. It can refer to the planet Earth specifically, the world upon which we stand. It can refer to mankind, to, to the people in the world. And it can refer to human experience, possessions, um, experiences, emotions. But the one that we're focusing on is how it's, the world is the system around us that is direct contrast. It is alienated from God in the same way that the world is going downstream and someone who pursues the Lord is going upstream and there will always be tension. There will always be um, conflict and there will always be difficulty when you're in direct contrast where one's going downstream and we're trying to swim upstream. So in this section here, it talks about how the world looked at, in the same way that Cain looked at the different um, the fact that Abel's actions were righteous and that theirs were evil, that Cain's was evil, John talks about then don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if they see people trying to live right and trying to live righteous and trying to do the right thing. And it becomes a mirror that is an unflattering mirror for people who are far from God. And it would be really easy to then just kind of say, okay, it's the world war. It's us versus them. But that's not the truth because we recognize that we too can be chair two Christians that have one foot in the world and one foot following God. We recognize that we too can make decisions in one area of our life that are God honoring and then in other areas that we go down a slippery slope. So this isn't a, a, a finger pointing to the people out there. It's recognizing that there is a degree to which we point in the mirror and said, what's, what's going on in here? So the ways of the world that causes us to be in direct conflict with God. And so that's the, that's the world war. But that's, that's not the one, again, I want to spend more time on. I want to get to this next one um, that we call the civil war. And here's what uh, John says, verse 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. John is pointing back to Jesus' definition of murder, that it's if you have hate in your heart for someone, that's murder. The anger inside your heart is murder. And he's saying that, so if we hate one another, because there's no longer just the world war, us versus them. It's now this idea of when there's a civil war, when there's a war or, or anger or enmity within the body of Christ. That I was looking up, and, and many of you know, um, maybe some of you um, haven't heard, but the idea that the, the war that had the most American deaths is the civil war. Because when there's a battle where both sides are supposed to be on the same side, there's going to be great casualties. That in the Civil War, there were over 600,000 people who died. 
and that's more than World War II and World War I combined. In fact, I saw one statistic that talked about how within the first 100 years of our nation, there were over 600, I forget the exact number, but 680 or so thousand people had died. And the Civil War accounted for 92% of American deaths because it was American versus American. Supposedly one side against, or about against the same side within this war. So when both sides are supposed to be on the same side, the casualties are astronomical. Whereas World War I and World War II combined is still less than 600,000 deaths. Why do we bring it up? Because there is a dynamic in which, especially for those of us who, who follow Jesus, there's a dynamic in which it's been really, um, really difficult when we turn on one another. It's really difficult when we recognize that there have been churches that have been split over, you know, the color of the carpet. There are churches that are split based off of things that are, that are so small. That the world looks at churches and Christians and they wonder, why are there so many denominations? Or how come you guys can't get along? Or what difference does Jesus make if you claim to have the same Lord and yet you fight one another and there are casualties on both sides? That I'm in a pastor's group with other senior pastors and there's a universal experience that, that pastors have had over the past year and four months or so in which every single decision that is made, some people get upset. People have been leaving the church. Some people leave happily. Some people leave unhappily. And this is for multiple churches and, and all trying to recognize that we're in this battle together. And yet there are times when we could feel like we could battle against the world. But when our home, our church is a place that, that's not, that there's still battles, it can feel really difficult to want to keep fighting. Pastors I know that have been in ministry for decades were sharing recently that they wish that they could quit. Recognizing, and this is not a this is not meant to be a you know poor pastors. If anything, this is a please pray for pastors, please pray for us. But it's this acknowledgement that when we as Christians fight one another, the casualties are great, and the casualties are not just other Christians. That there are people who will look at how we respond to one another, and they'll see the divisions that divide us. And they'll say, why would I want to become a part of something that is still so divisive? Imagine going to a, uh, an interview for a job and you have an opportunity to, to interview and meet with different people there. And imagine that you go to this room and you end up having, you know, little one-on-one -on -one conversations and you find out that, you know, this person keeps talking badly about that person over there and this person talks badly about that person and, and this person is really upset about this thing that they never brought up to that person and so there's still division and enmity there. That gossip and the sin of triangulation, when if you have a problem with someone, instead of just going directly to them, you go to someone else and then you create this triangle where there's a three-sided conversation. People fall into that rather than just a one-on-one -on -one line. All of a sudden you go and you get a sense of like, man, things aren't healthy here. Thing, things are, there's difficulty and there's conflict and there's issues. And then they, by the end, you go and talk to everybody and, and you, the, the people offer you the job. And they say, well, don't you want to become a part of this organization? And if all you've seen is strife, conflict, hatred, and division, how likely are you to want to jump into that? 
Maybe imagine going to a, a Thanksgiving dinner or a meal with someone and, and you go in and you can walk into a room and the house may be neat, the food may smell delicious, there might be candles and, and it might just be a very welcoming environment, but you could walk through the tension in that room as thick as walking through a spider web. Like you're just, you just feel it. And they invite you to a meal. And, and no matter what, there's little snide remarks from one person to another. Maybe the kids are sniping at their parents or, or the spouses are sniping to one another. And they're inviting you to the table, but in the end, you're recognizing, oh, my gosh, there is so much going on in here. If they invite you back to the table, how likely are you to want to go back? See, as people who love God, if we don't keep the main thing the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if, if we lose sight of the main thing, and, and as some, as you may have heard before, if we, if we major in minor things, if we major in the minors, then there will be major casualties in that division. And it's heartbreaking to know that the world is watching us. And there have been times, not just in this past year, but in general throughout our history as Christendom, as, as church, there have been so many times where our divisiveness and our battles within one another have been a turn off to someone coming to know Jesus rather than an invitation to sit at the table, an invitation to join this beautiful, imperfect, messy, but beautiful thing called the church. Do we expect Christians to have no problems with one another? Of course there will be problems. Of course there will be conflict. Of course there will be those difficulties that we face. But how do we navigate those things? How do we recognize that great wars, world war, us versus the world, civil war, us against one another, how do we recognize that great wars are won by showing greater love? By not just falling into the trap of the world or the ways that the world works, the, ba the battles, excuse me, the ways that the world battles, but being able to recognize how do we show a greater love to one another? That is, verse 15 talks about, it. we know that we pass from death to life because we love each other. And in verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. So as the beginning parts talks about how the world will be against us, whenever John refers to each other, or brothers and sisters, at that point, he is very clearly and very specifically turning his attention to within the body of Christ. So he's saying, don't just think the battle's out there. Recognizing, recognize that there are difficulties here. And when there are a war where two people or two sides are supposed to be on the same side, the casualties are great. And so what does it look like with a few minutes that we have left to 1 John 3, 16 through 18 unpacks for us what a greater love looks like. What it means to show greater love to people both outside the church and inside the church. 1 John 3, 16, we'll start here. The greater love looks like this. 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. First point is that the, this greater love is a love that is sacrificial. 
a love that lays down its life for one another, that follows the mode of Jesus or the example of Jesus, not the example of the world. Because if greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend, well, then great hatred has no one than this, that a brother like Cain would slay his own brother, like Abel. Not lay down his life for his friend, but take his brother's life. See, a greater love that we can show towards one another is sacrificial, one in which we lay down our wants. We put others' needs above our own. That we don't fall into selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others greater than ourselves. That we have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And I think I shared before when I first read that verse in Philippians 2, I thought that grasp meant like intellectually understood. But Jesus fully knew who he was. He intellectually knew who he was. So it wasn't that he tried to grasp, like physically understand it. It's this idea of he's, it was not meant to be something that was snatched and stolen and taken. So Jesus, who is in the very nature of God, in humility took the nature of a servant. And being found in human likeness, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We ought to follow that example of laying down our lives and our wants and our needs to show love to those around us within the church and outside of it. Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? This, this greater love we have is sacrificial, but it's also number two, it's generous. It's a kind of love that recognizes what do I have that I can give to other people? If I have material possessions and see someone in need, and I'm not stirred to action or I'm not uh, whatever that may be. And part of that is because we often live in a, um, a scarcity mindset. An idea that there won't be enough for me, so I'm going to hold on to enough or hold on to whatever I can. It's the, it's the thing that we can look back on and maybe hopefully chuckle about a little over a year ago when we all just really all of a sudden love toilet paper. Because we thought there's not going to be enough for us, so I'm going to build a fort in my garage in which there will be toilet paper, and then it'll be, you know, it'll be delightful. Right? But this idea of we live in a, when we live in a scarcity mindset, we think there's not enough. And what a scarcity mindset um, subconsciously teaches us, and the world is a scarcity. It's a dog-eat-dog. It's all what I need. When we enter into the kingdom of God, we don't live under a scarcity mindset. We live in an, an abundance mindset. This, we, correct, we recognize that the cattle on a thousand hills are God's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He will give us our daily bread. He'll give us what we need, not always what we want. So when we hoard what we want and think that abundance, or excuse me, think that resources are scarce, we go and we see that those around us go hungry, go thirsty, go uh, without clothes or whatever it may be. And this is not meant to be a guilt trip. This is meant for us to recognize how do we combat these wars that are against the world and within one another, one another and within our church, or the church, excuse me, not our church, the church. This idea that we have to show sacrificial love, put others' needs above our own. We have a generous love in which we see what can we give rather than what do we hoard. Third is that it's something that is proven by action. Verse 18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This past week, Shaylin, or sorry, Elise, just asked me, like, Dad, 
what would you do if every time I said I love you, I was just like, I love you. I'd be like, probably wouldn't believe it, to be honest with you. You know, you don't really seem very excited about anything. <laughs> but, but we also talk about, well, okay, how do you show that you love someone? We, how many of us have had people who said I love you with their mouths, but have completely shown by their actions something antithetical or opposite to that? That the single greatest cause, as Brendan Manning says, the single greatest cause of atheism today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and go out and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That when we prove through our actions that we love someone, that's a greater kind of love. Because anyone can say it. How do we show it? With our speech, with our tongue, we can say, oh, I love you, I love you. But how do we prove it through our actions? And sometimes those actions are laying down our lives for one another or sacrificing. Sometimes it is to be generous. But it can't just be lip service. It can't just be something that we say. It has to be something that is what we say backed up with how we live. That James 2, 14 through 26 talks about this, this idea that you can't just say, oh, if someone comes to you hungry, says, oh, go and be well. No, no, we have to show our faith by what we do, by our deeds. Do the deeds save us? No, the only deed that saves us is Christ's life, death, and resurrection and our receiving of that gift. But are our deeds a fruit that come from a saving relationship? Absolutely. So this greater love that, we are, that we're called to live is following Christ's example. It's sacrificial, it's generous, it's proven by action. And then the last point is it's founded on truth. It's founded on truth. Again, last part of verse 18. The last part says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. I wonder if you've heard the saying before that love without truth is not love and truth without love is not truth. Or another saying is, is Warren Wearsby talks about how truth without love is brutality. Love without truth can be hypocrisy. Or, or, or this idea that if we truly love someone, we love them enough to tell them the truth. So we're not disregarding truth. We're, not, we're, we're elevating the truth of what God's word says, but we're doing so with love so that people can recognize it. That love opens the door so that truth can clean out the mess in our house. So when we have something that's founded on the truth of the gospel and the truth of who we are, we recognize that we are now loving one another with truth. Those are not antithetical. And as someone who... Um, as someone who struggles with wanting to be a people pleaser, speaking truth can be hard. Because I want to love, I want to say, oh, I want to love you. I want to just, you know, say nice things. But if I'm not really loving you, if I'm not telling you truth. And that goes for one-on-one conversations. That goes when we're preaching sermons. That goes in all these different things. I'm not loving you as a pastor or as a fellow brother in Christ if we don't speak truth. But I'm also, if I just came up in truth to you all the time without love behind that, it's a really quick way to slam the door shut. So how do we do truth and love together? Well, the way that we see truth and love together is embodied, as many of us can envision, in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
that the truth was is that we are all sinners. Yes, even you. Notice I didn't look at any one specific person in that moment, but it would be truthful and loving if I did. Um, you are a sinner. You know why I know that? Because I am a sinner. And truth, God can't sugarcoat the fact that, that we have sin in our lives. It's not something he can say, oh, it's not a big deal. It's no worries. Just go and live your life. Try to be happy. I just, you know, I just want you to be happy. No, no. God does not want us to be happy. As many of us know, God wants us to be holy. God does not want us to be happy. He wants us to be his. And the way that we are his is when we recognize that God's truth, the truth that we are all fall short of the glory of God, that there's no way that we could have bridged the gap on our own, the truth that the only way for us to be able to have a right relationship with God was if someone willingly laid down their life who was without sin and was able to lovingly do so. And so God's truth is that vertical beam of the cross. And then God's love for us is shown in Christ raising out or stretching out his hands. And so truth and love meet at the point of the cross, at the crux of all of history. That when we see what Jesus did is he showed us that greater love, a love that was sacrificial, a love that was generous, a love that was proven by his actions, and a love that was founded on truth. What does that mean for us? It means that as we leave this place, you might be like, okay, that's... Good to know, what do I do with that? Maybe we ask ourselves some questions. We wrestle with some things this week and we ask God, where are ways that I'm not being loving towards other brothers and sisters? Who, God, Holy Spirit revealed to me, who might be someone that I'm harboring hatred to? And then maybe I wouldn't want to put it that way, but in my heart of hearts, that's what it is. Who might I be harboring hatred to? Because if I'm harboring hatred, John says that I'm a murderer. And if I'm a murderer, then the love of God can't be in me. God, see if there's any offensive way in me and renew me in the way everlasting. Maybe it's asking, how do we speak to those who don't know Jesus? How do we speak about others who do? Do we find ways to Oh, yeah, this person's in my Bible study, but you should see what she does on the weekends. Oh, this person goes to my youth group, but he is just crazy and he does everything antithetical to God. Are, are, are we besmirching the bride of Christ to those around us? Because when there are two sides in a civil war, the casualties are great. Are there people in your life whether they know Jesus or not, that you would never say that you hate them. But your actions would say that you're putting your own needs above their own. And thus we're not fulfilling or following through with Christ's example. That greater love has known than this than one who laid down his life for his friends. And you know what another kind of great love is? The love that Jesus did who laid down his life for people who he knew would mock and kill and never receive him. And yet, he was still willing to die. He was willing to die to extend that invitation to you and to me. You know, we started or, or we had a, a moment a few bits ago about recognizing what does it look like? Maybe you walk into a dinner table and there's tension there. 
Many of you may have heard this story. Um, I actually first saw it on Unsolved Mysteries. Does anyone remember that show? Yeah. It's what I watched at when I was like home by myself in the afternoons. Um, Unsolved Mysteries, but they shared a story uh, from World War II. And it was a story in which there was a, a young boy named Fritz and his mom. And they're in the middle of nowhere. His, his dad was off and they had a, a, a rooster that they were going to cook for Christmas. And it was Christmas night. And they hear a knock at the door. They know it's not the husband. He wasn't supposed to be there. But they're in the middle of the wilderness in Germany. They knock on the door and they open it and they see three American soldiers. One who's injured and two who are asking you know, if they could have a shelter to stay. They lost their, their troop. They didn't know where to go. And they both, you know, the, the, the German woman didn't speak English. The, the Americans didn't speak German, but they both shared a broken uh, language of French, and they did their best to kind of communicate. She brings them in, knowing that there is a penalty for harboring the enemy. She brings them in, and she starts to get the, the rooster ready um, for Christmas dinner. And shortly thereafter, there's another knock on the door. The, the Fritz, who's the, the boy who was an older man by the time the story was told, assumes that it's more American soldiers. He opens the door and he sees three Nazi soldiers wondering if they could have a place to stay. The woman rushes to the front door and, and the mom rushes to the front door and says, you know, you are welcome to come in, but we have some guests in here that you may not like. And she, he asks, are they Americans? And she says, yes. They come in, and he's, they say, this is Christmas time. There will be no fighting here today. They come in. One of the German soldiers, two of them were 16 years old. One of them was 23. One of the German soldiers looks at the wound of the American soldier, tends to his wound. They look, and they sleep there. They have a great meal that night. They sleep shoulder to shoulder with the enemy. The next morning, they go in different directions. The American says, hey, like, we think our troops are here in this city. The Germans say, don't go there because that's now under our control. You guys are more over here. They direct them on their path in order for them to be caught up. Now, this story gets told years upon years later, and eventually, Fritz, as an older man, has always wanted to meet some of the soldiers. And so he finds out and he meets the American, one of the American soldiers, the one who was injured and to whom he said, your mother saved my life because she cared for me and we got medical attention and we were able to find our troops. And it's this beautiful story of, of people on opposite sides of a war who were able to be shoulder to shoulder, break bread, sleep peacefully. Why? Because they were shown and they received a greater love. If the hospitality of one woman in the German forest, wilderness, can allow for two people on, or two um, enemies in a war to be able to have a peaceful night on Christmas, how much more, how much more can the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ allow us to not see everyone as enemies, but to show a greater love that is sacrificial, generous, proven by action, and founded on truth, and be able to share that with one another so that every people group from every nation, every tribe, every tongue will be able to confess that Christ is Lord. That people who are so far from God, they never, you never would have ex expected them to follow Jesus. They would receive that invitation to sit at a table. Not one that is strife with internal conflict, but one that is infused with eternal love. A greater love. 
that we see from Jesus and we could share with those around us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the fact that, Lord, while we were still sinners, while we were your enemies, you sent Jesus to die for us. There's nothing we could do, Lord, to make you love us anymore. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to make you love us any less. We can't lose it. That the price of your love and the proof of your love was through the sacrificial, generous actions of Jesus who died on the cross. He already paid the penalty. He already made us, or they gave us the uh, invitation to be made new and become new creation in you. And Lord, we recognize, Holy Spirit, that you may be stirring within some of us now to receive that invitation today. Lord, knowing that there are people who are feel, experiencing great battles, internal, external, emotional, spiritual, mental, physical, that, that are experiencing such great battles today, Lord. May you help us to see in what ways we are contributing to the battles and wars around us. May we confess those. May you convict us of those. And then may we see in which ways we are contributing to showing a greater love so that peace would not just last a day in Christmas in Germany, Lord, but that a peace that would last and surpass all understanding and would last for all of eternity. May we follow your example, Jesus, and lay down our lives and put others' needs above our own so that people can come into a right relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.